0: Redefined will reopen for enrollment on January. We have helped over 100 Reactive Dog teams make huge progress inside of Reactive Redefined, and we want to help you next. So if you're struggling with your Reactive Dog, please consider joining Reactive Redefined when it reopens for enrollment in January. We'll give you the practical skills and emotional support just to make huge strides in your dog's training. If you are interested in learning more about joining Reactive Redefined, be sure to join the wait list so that you are the first to know when enrollment is open. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. I am so delighted that you are here. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a different animal, but it is the same concepts that I have been ringing home for all of you beautiful listeners. And this was really kind of brought on by me going on a horseback ride and kind of, you know, maybe seeing some of the things in the horse world that I fight against in the dog world. And Adele is kind of an expert on those matters. So, um, the listeners who don't already know you, can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, for
1: sure. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm super excited and I'm a very passionate dog lover. Um, my name is Adele Shaw and I'm, uh, the founder and head trainer of the willing equine. That's my business. And, um, I'm a certified uh, equine behaviorist or, a uh, Behavioral consultant through IABC. And um, yeah, I do, I really focus on positive reinforcement training for horses, you know, clicker training, um, and we follow Lima principles and the humane hierarchy. But really, my goal is just seeing change in the horse world and trying to motivate equestrians, horse people, um, caregivers, trainers, owners, you know, grooms to think differently about their horses and interact with them differently. And to really have that uh, motivation and a drive towards a positive relationship with their horses. Um, And so that's kind of my overall mission. I'm based in Texas, uh, central Texas. I have a facility where I train out of, but I really do a lot of work online, virtually uh, consulting all over the world and I have memberships and courses and all that. And Yeah, that's where, oh, I guess I should introduce my dog side of things. I actually looked into or started training dogs professionally for a while, but I quickly realized that my passion was very much with horses. And so I'm still a big dog lover. I have a Rottweiler um, named Athena and I have an Australian shepherd named Roke. um, And they are my loves. Roke is my my shadow. He follows me everywhere at the ranch. He's my ranch dog, really. And um, (laughs) Athena, we actually picked up on the side of the road two years ago, she had just was a stray. And so she's been living with us ever since living the good life.
0: Um, oh my yeah, God. So- I love it. I love it. Okay. And I have to ask this because I think my listeners want to know how did the dogs do with the horses? So,
1: um, Roke, he I've had him since he was 10 weeks old and he's been raised around the horses. He does fabulous. Um, I was very, intentional with teaching him to be around them quietly and not be prone to hurting them or doing anything with them. Although he does get really excited when they roll, (laughs) he thinks that's (laughs) super interesting and he wants to jump on top of them, which is not safe. Um, so we've had to work on that, but otherwise he just like, we'll head out on a trail ride and he just jogs along with us and he's fantastic. Um, but he's been around, he's 12 now. And he's been around horses since he was 10 weeks. So he's really experienced. Um, Athena, though, <laughs> a little bit different story. Um, she actually has some really strong, I'm going to label it as fear aggression towards the horses. And I have to watch her very closely. And usually she's muzzled um, just for safety, for her wow. safety and the horse's safety. Um, and she'll, if she sees a horse, she gets really worried, but she goes towards them. So she won't <laughs> run away. um, And so I'm very cautious with her and our, their interactions are very structured at this point. And we're just doing lots of like counter conditioning and creating positive associations. I think honestly, she just scared the living daylights out of her to be around such large animals. I don't know if she'd ever seen one. um, And we guess oh, really? she's a, probably around six years old. So I don't know what happened to her before me. So (laughs) there's a lot of possibilities there, um, but likely it's just
0: a, whoa, what is that? I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) Right. Well, and I think, you know, a lot of my listeners deal with reactive behavior towards large, large animals. So I'm sure it probably makes a lot of them feel better that you have to use management and training for your dogs too.
1: Yes. And I'm, I'm very very structured and careful. And I manage um, because I think a lot of people, when they see reactivity towards large animals, it's, it's their own, you know, dog, and maybe it's their neighbor's horses or their cattle, or it's their friend's ranch or whatever. But in this case, they're actually my horses and I'm very careful of them. I don't want them to get injured either. Of course, they're much larger than Athena is, but still, Athena has teeth, and so they're equally as dangerous to each other. So to keep everybody safe, it's really important that I manage those interactions. Um, So I'm very careful about that.
0: Oh my God. I love that. Okay. Well, we're going to have to do another episode on horse dog safety, <laughs> but that's for another day. Okay. So yeah. can you share with the listeners a little bit about, I know you kind of mentioned you started in the, the dog training world and then you kind of transitioned to the equine world. Can you kind of talk a little bit more about like maybe some of the pivotal moments where you realize like, okay, horse training is where I need to be.
1: Yeah. Um, So I have a little bit of a wild ride, uh, as far as my, to getting to this point, I actually started off in the horse world. I started taking lessons when I was eight and and I've had horses since I was 10. Um, fast forward many years of being in the competition world, the competitive world, riding traditionally natural horsemanship. I did all the things. I used all the bits. I used all the whips and I used all of the equipment possible and trained with a very heavy hand. and I along came my first daughter and I was actually only 21 when I had my first daughter and I got married and we were living more in the city and I couldn't really afford horses and also at the same time my um, two of my horses had to be put down from various medical stuff it was just weird it kind of happened back to back and it was very hard on me Um, and I had a lot going on and so I kind of decided to really put the horse thing on the back burner I was like maybe it's just not the right time and I started exploring because I love dogs too um, and I'd had Australian shepherds for a while and I was actually working at a boarding kennel a training and boarding kennel and so I started exploring going the professional route with dogs um, and I did that for a little while um, but, sh- but it just didn't I don't know i never felt like home i don't know how to explain it but for me personally yeah. it didn't feel like home and i was always wanted to get back to the horses get back to the horses and so my family and i decided that we were just going to get some you know quote trail horses just some recreational <laughs> horses because you have to understand i had imported show horses at this point i had been importing horses from like germany and uh, we had one from oh shoot it was a different country. I can't remember, but we had really fancy warm bloods. And for you guys who don't know horse, stuff, it's just like the competitive breeds for dressage and jumper and all these stuff. So they were expensive. Um, and so we were just going to get some just trail horses, some just whatever inexpensive, really chill family trail horses, you know, uh, husband approved family approved, whatever kid approved. Um, <laughs> yeah that didn 't go that way we, <laughs> we, we We got these horses, but um one of them, her name was Tiger, and um, actually, when she came to me she didn 't have a name they didn 't name her. They just roped her out of the pasture and just for like oh yeah i don 't know what her name is. It was just a very detached situation. They were not very um, yeah I don't know they weren 't very attached to their horses and So I took her and with some other horses and um, it became very apparent that we had a lot to unpack and a lot to work through. And at this time, you have to realize I had been clicker training and positive reinforcement training with dogs for years. I did agility very competitively for a long time. Um, I titled multiple dogs and, um, but for horses, it was different in my mind. I was like, horses are different. They need a leader. They need, you know, dominance and they need to, anyway, just this whole thing. It, somehow I compartmentalize that really well, unfortunately. And, um, this mare showed up in my life and she was like, you know, obviously she didn't intentionally say this or think this, but her behavior basically pushed me to a point where, something had to give, something had to change, whatever I was doing, wasn't working. And she really motivated me to start exploring. Um, and that's when I started exploring clicker training and positive reinforcement. And I got really sucked back in. I was like, the horse world needs to know this. Like they need oh to know God, these things. Yes. So yeah, that's how I got here.
0: <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So Adele, can you give some of us non-horse people a little bit more perspective about like Is it, I don't know, can we use the word common that people don't have terribly emotional relationships with their horses?
1: Um, yes and no. Horses are kind of this weird, they're in this weird spot where they're, um, I consider them like the way we treat them and the way the equestrian industry really treats them is this combination of livestock, sports equipment, and pet. But the pet part is very small. It's largely sports equipment and livestock. So we treat them like this... (laughs) They are their sports equipment. They are treated very well as far as medical needs and sport, athletic needs. But as far as meeting their needs as an individual animal and really building that relationship with them, that does happen. But it is not as common as I would say it is for, like, if you were to have a dog in your house, especially for pet dog owners um, or. You know, maybe it's more comparable to like military dogs or police dogs. I don't know exactly, but they are, there is a sense of um, emotional detachment a little bit, especially because it was very common, especially while I was growing up, but I still know this is pretty prevalent. We were told that we kept a horse for two years and then traded in. So we went to the next horse after two years and that was just common. That was expected. You, you got a horse, you worked with them and competed on them and did all this for two years. And then he traded in for essentially the next model. (laughs) And, um, so yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of attachment there. They're not family members at that point. Um, yeah, they're just kind of a means to an end.
0: (laughs) So there's a little bit more focus on like the horse's purpose and use for us, not necessarily like, how does this particular horse feel about this particular situation?
1: (laughs) Oh no, that is, I don't, I think I've heard, I could count on one hand, how many times I've heard somebody ask that actually about their horse, most of the time it's, what do you mean you don't ride your horse? Then what is it good for? Like that that is a very, very common statement in the horse world, unless you're riding your horse or, um, they have a purpose, something, some way that they are serving you, then there is no use for them. So it's just, that's the kind of the mentality.
0: Right. So like, I guess, you know, when we kind of compare, like maybe the horse to the dog, it's like in the dog world, it's like you have to control. And in the horse world, it's more the horse has to serve a purpose or it's irrelevant.
1: Yeah. Definitely the, the horse, um, that is definitely the mentality where the horse needs to serve a purpose or else they're just taking up space and time. And to be fair, they are a very, very expensive animal. Yeah. Right. right. (laughs) I can
0: totally understand like why the thinking has been like that. Right. Like you're going to invest that amount of like time and money into an animal of that size. Right. Like there has to be, I guess, a trade-off on the human end. Well,
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's not, I, I, I work very hard to change that mentality and, and to encourage people. Like I understand that you may only be able to afford one horse. Um, it's a lot to be able to afford a horse. That's, that's a luxury. Honestly, yeah. they are very expensive. they, eat a lot they require a ton of space and their medical bills are astronomical like I don't know why such a large animal is so fragile but they are (laughs) and I can't tell you how many times I've joked with people and I've had students joke with me like why do we even why are we even doing this it's so stressful sometimes (laughs) um like right now I'm actually, I have to, I've been scheduling vet appointments cause I have a mare that just fractured one of her teeth and that's big, big, big expensive bill. Um, right. and, uh, and I have right now I'm at, uh, well, I actually own seven horses and then I have one more that's in my care, but anyway, so <laughs> that's expensive. It adds up. Um, but I try and tell people, you know, that's okay if you can only afford one, or maybe we lease a horse or something like that, but I try and motivate them and encourage them to change the perspective on what they consider as useful, or I try and tra- change that mindset and that conversation to like, um, I heard this this said recently, but it was about relationships, and it's about um, having mutually Shared reinforcers and ways basically that the relationship is reinforcing both participants, so that 's one hundred percent acceptable when you have a horse, like it needs to be reinforcing for you too, and but you need to also be providing reinforcement for the horse, um, but that doesn 't necessarily mean they need to be go in competing internationally or running barrel races or winning money or riding like you can find a lot of value and groundwork with your horse and just spending time with your horse I mean honestly one of the best things my favorite things I love to do is just sitting and grooming a horse that is so therapeutic and it's really special bonding time and I will take that hands down over competing in in a very stressful show (laughs) nowadays um and so I try and get them thinking more towards that. Like it's less about being able to ride this horse and it's more about just having that relationship with that horse and then finding that as the reinforcer and finding that as the, um, the basis for the relationship that they have together.
0: Oh my God, that is beautiful. Okay. So, um, I want to hear some of the things that are, mm, I don't know, can we say widely accepted in the horse world that you consider inhumane? We could spend an hour just listing these out. Um,
1: honest, some of the big ones that I see right now, I, is just providing the horse with its basic needs, with the horse's basic needs. Um, it's quite surprising how few horses actually have their basic needs met. So when I'm look, I'm looking or thinking about like the five uh, freedoms, um, so friends, forage, safety, um, Oh my gosh, I can't recall all of them for some reason in my head, but, um, basically just being able to provide them with friends. So a social, um, herd situation where they can live with other horses. That is actually pretty rare in the show world that they get to live with other horses, which is how they're designed. They are meant to live as a herd and they don't get that. Um, I actually work, I've been to and work at, um, for clients, some different facilities in my area where The horses have like a pen or a stall, but then there's electric, you know, they run electric taper wires between all the pens so they can't socialize with each other. And I understand the mentality behind that, but it's also very detrimental to the horse. So I would like to see that change. Um, And the other really big one is providing them with forage, Um, their digestive systems and their just the way they're built and they're meant to be. They're meant to be eating a minimum of 18 hours a day. Um, yeah, wow. Yeah. So, so they, um, but unfortunately what commonly happens is they get thrown food, like they get two to three meals a day, which they usually finish within 30 minutes to an hour. Um, so they're not anywhere near their basic requirements as far as forage access and being able to eat goes And this is really common. This is a really common way of keeping horses and feeding them. And so those are two huge needs that need to be changed and met. And I can't tell you how many behavioral issues that I get called to you know consult on or whatever, and the solution is give them hay, like give them more food and and i 'm like you 'd fix all your problems they 'd be and then you 'd also be really amazed at how many people refuse to do that um, Wow, they would rather spend a lot of money and time and training and supplements and set you know like calming supplements and all that than just provide them with more turnout and more forage and more friends. I mean, just those basic needs. Um, so we're kind well, of fighting like against them
0: really going. enriching the horse's life before we even talk about training, right? Like we have to make sure that their basic needs are met before we can expect mm-hmm. them to be, you know, open and willing to the behavior change that we're after. For sure.
1: It's, we're really working against ourselves, um, and their base in their basic nature, but we're asking them to be something they're not, and then we're getting mad at them about it. <laughs> it's just like I, they're just not designed to eat meals like that and to be isolated, and also they're meant to move constantly. so the idea of stalling for extended periods of time, so keeping them in a usually stalls are around um you, the average is twelve foot by twelve foot um and these wow. are animals that are designed to travel miles and miles every day um, grazing, looking for food, looking for water, just moving as a herd. And then we want to put them in a box, literally. <laughs> um, and so just these basic needs, that's really honestly beyond the, or before I get too hung up on, I want everybody to be training with positive reinforcement clicker <laughs> training. Um, that i that's one of the first things i'm like okay yes i want you to get to those things but those will only be so effective that will only be so effective if we're not meeting those basic needs first okay and and
0: i i love it because this is literally exactly what i preach about dogs right like <laughs> yeah it's exactly the same we have to meet their basic needs so how has the horse world interpreted your knowledge, right? Like when you get called in and you you tell someone, you said some people don't want to do it. Do you feel like slowly but surely you're seeing more people open to making the changes you're suggesting?
1: We are seeing a big movement. It is happening. It's happening slowly. Um, I find so the people who reach out to me online typically already know what I do, um, and they've already been following my stuff, and so they already know whether or not they're on board to some degree or not. Um, so by the time they're reaching out to me, they have a basic understanding and a willingness to learn. Um, the people I meet in person, though, are less likely to have that you know foundation already set up as far as understanding what I do and how I do it um, and what I basically preach about keeping (laughs) horses so they tend to be a little bit more taken aback or shocked um and sometimes more resistant to it sometimes they eat it right up and they're like yes let's do it you know (laughs) the biggest struggle has been the individual horse owners typically are pretty open and accepting of these changes that I would like them to make but I'm having a really hard time getting the facilities that they have to keep their horses at to make the changes because most people do not well I shouldn't say most people I don't actually know what the statistics are but quite a large proportion of a portion of the uh, equestrian world keeps their horses at a boarding facility so it's like keeping your dog at a boarding kennel all the time this is right. and then they go and visit them every day for like an hour and they do their lesson and they groom them and they put them up put them away. And um that's how they live and that's how they interact with their horse. And so they are kind of at the mercy of these boarding facilities to meet their horse's needs as far as turnout goes and friends and getting enough forage and stuff and the facilities are pretty resistant to changing mostly because it's very expensive to keep a horse on forage uh 24/7. Um, and a lot of boarding facilities don't have enough land for the number of horses that they have. So they can't keep them on grass all the time. So there's limitations there that the owners are running up against. Um, so no matter how much they want to change, they are limited. And so this causes a lot of, uh, struggle, a mental and emotional struggle for the owners because they see that they need to make this change, but they don't know how to provide it. Um, they're rather restricted. So, that's actually one of the bigger areas that I've run into problems with is with where the clients are keeping their horses and the limitations that, that, uh, you know, provides them,
0: um, or doesn't provide them. So, well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I understand it is that like boarding facilities have a wait list, right? Like, it's not like there's just like a, a better boarding facility that horse guardians can just like quickly get their horse to, right? Like in Colorado, I understand they're in pretty high demand, right? Like getting in at a good boarding place is not easy.
1: Yeah, and it's the same here where I am. Um, I'm outside of Austin, which is really growing very fast. And there's many months of wait lists at most of the boarding facilities. But honestly, even the ones that have the board uh even the boarding facilities that have the wait lists, they are doing the same thing. They're all doing the same thing. They all have the right. same couple meals a day and individual pens and So you have to look hard to find somewhere that has those needs met, those basic needs available to be met. Um, but typically those are not show barns or competitive barns with trainers there that are resident trainers that are competitive. So it's, it's such a, Oh, there's so many factors in it. And there's so many barriers that equestrians, you know, horse caregivers are, Running up against. And so we're just out here trying our hardest. <laughs> oh my God.
0: Well, and you know, we can only help that, you know, the revolution that you're a part of, right? Like 10 years from now, we can be like, wow, like the boarding world has changed significantly in the interest of the animal, right? So change happens sometimes slower. Right. And there's just, you know, with a large animal, it just requires more, right. There literally has to be more space. There has to be more food, more people have to get on board. There's just a lot more variables.
1: There is. And then there's the, the social dynamic of it too. A lot of um, individual owners, caregivers are ridiculed and made fun of for clicker training or doing any positive reinforcement training or even just wanting to do things like give their horse more hay um they're kind of looked at like they're strange and so there's there's so much that we're fighting up against and really having to be strong for our horses and advocating for them Um, there's so much opposition there and so I feel I have so much sympathy because I have my own facility. So I get to do whatever I want, um, within right. reason, but, um, nobody looks at me funny when I give my horse an extra flake of Hey, uh, let's just put it that way. Um, right. But and... you get to be
0: proof of what's possible, right? Like having your own facility, yeah. having you, you said you own seven horses. Yes. Is that how many yeah. horses are on the property? Do you offer boarding too?
1: There's eight right now on the property. I a very, very limited, um, availability for, I do board and train kind of situations. So if they're boarding with me, then they're in full-time training. Um, so I have a few spots available for not literally available right now, but yes, in right, general, right. I have those couple of spots that I, um, do and I hope to expand upon that in the near future. Um, but yeah, I just have so much, I have so much sympathy and just compassion for, these caregivers that are really out there trying to fight for their horses and advocate for their horses and are just meeting so much resistance. Um, And I really do hope to see more boarding um, options available that are meeting those needs that we're looking for. Just, we're not even asking for too much, but the problem is it's, it's the horse world is so, Steeped in tradition and the way it's always done. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard, you know, well, that's how my grandpa did it back in Wyoming and he was a cowboy and just like on and on
0: and on. I'm like, right. that's nice. But, <laughs> you know, right. And it's the- really people's emotional attachment to the way things have been and fear of change, right? Like, It's scary Mm -hmm. to step outside the box. And like, you know, I've been a part of the competitive dog world and I can only imagine how much more intense it is in the horse world, right? Like the judgment from other people.
1: Oh my gosh. It's there's a reason I don't go to, well, one, I don't have an interest in competing anymore personally, but even when I did, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I cried at a show, um, just from judgment from other people or because, you know, my horse wasn't the flashiest, even though they did the course perfectly. There's a lot of, um, it's kind of a, a little bit of a fashion show. Um, there's, there's a lot of bias stuff going on and, and there's a lot of really awful things that you see there people doing to their horses off or, you know, out of the show ring. Um, right. it's just a really hard place to be. And well, it just doesn't I, align with your values at all. Right. Like yeah, but even back in the day when I did train more like they do, it, sometimes I was still really shocked and just emotionally drained. Um, and it's just gotten worse. So now I just don't go at all. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's tough. It's a tough world. And I only in the dog competitive world, I only participated in agility. But I've can imagine some of the other um, competitive areas have different dynamics that are a little bit. Harder to push up against, I know i 've heard from other trainer friends um, that there it 's a little bit tougher and some other rings, some other types of training.
0: There's always judgment, there always is, and there's always a, well, we've been doing it this way. so um, okay, so I want to talk just a little bit more about some of the other maybe traditional things, like maybe specifically pertaining to training, so like mm-hmm. an equipment, right? So can you help the listeners kind of understand like what a traditional like equipment setup might be on a horse and how you differ from that?
1: Oh my. Okay. So this, <laughs> <laughs> this varies greatly depending on the discipline. Um, there is, you know, there's the whole Western training world, which includes things like Western pleasure and barrel racing and raining, And that may not mean anything to any of you guys. Um, <laughs> that's just some of the sub. So there's like two different, um, I guess you could really break it down to like, there's two different real predominant. And saddle types that you ride in. So there's like the Western saddle, which is what you're going to come across when you're um, doing like trail rides. Like if you, you know, pay a trail guide or something. And then there's the English, which is more like the jumper and you see it more in the Olympics, things like that. And there are other disciplines too. There's endurance and side saddle. Anyway, there's all this other stuff, but those are the two big ones. And um, the setups for those two and the equipment that is common to see on a horse will vary greatly based on that, those two different types of disciplines and what area of competition you're in. But typically um, you'll see a bit, so that's a metal, you know, there's a lot of different versions of it, but it's just a metal bar that goes across the inside the horse's mouth across it and over the tongue. Um, There bits vary everything from a really soft, flexible one with multiple joints so it can move and roll with the tongue to things with I've seen, I've seen terrible things in bits. I've seen spikes I've seen, um, uh, I've just seen so much with bits. So there, there are yeah. some really mild and arguably kinder, um, well-fitted bits. And then there are some really atrocious ones that are just downright, just medieval cruelty torture devices, Um, and it's really common when you're having behavioral issues under saddle to what they call bit up. So you basically go for the worst bits and you keep going until your horse submits basically. Right. You just keep Um,
0: increasing, increasing frets until you get what you need. Yes, exactly. So that's a
1: really common one. The other one that is common across the disciplines is spurs. There's different types of spurs. Um, it's a metal bar that wraps around the back of your heel, um on the rider and it usually has anything from a little metal nub on the end to a longer spike sometimes it has um i'm just going it, to it's not a spike it's like a just a longer i don't know how to explain it it's just longer it's longer okay. metal thing and so you you what the effect of it is is that um if the horse isn't responding to the heel then the metal part comes in. So you will turn your heels inwards to, um, put the pressure of that spi- of those, uh, spurs into the sides, into the ribs of the horse. So you'll have your right, your legs around the side of your horse, and then you'll have your legs resting next to them. And if you need to use your spurs, you turn your heels in slightly, and that metal will make contact with the, their sides where the ribs are. Um, the severity of spurs varies greatly. There are actually horses that are specifically trained. They're called spur trained horses. And so they have very specific behaviors that are on cue to that sensation, that tactile sensation of the spur, how they go about making that the cue is varies greatly. Um, But sometimes the spurs are used as more of a threat or a punisher. And sometimes they're actually used as a cue, for specific behavior. So again, it varies greatly how this equipment is used and how severely and what it looks like. There's a lot of variety out there. Um, let's see some of the other common ones. Oh, a whip is really common. So yeah. So a whip is a long stick, um, that you, the rider would carry in hand as they're riding along. And again, the whips use varies greatly based on the discipline, based on the rider and based on their understanding of how to use it. Um, I'll tell you what from my what I did. Um, I rode dressage for a long time and we used the whip as like a we would call it like the reinforcer for the outside leg. So basically, if the horse wasn't responding to the outside leg the way we wanted it to, we'd bring in the whip to tap on their side. And sometimes it would get quite severe until the horse responded. So it was an increasing pressure because my leg could only squeeze so much. Um, right. So yeah, we're just increasing that threat until we get the response. And sometimes it was used as an actual punisher. So, you know, the horse throws the shoulder or dodges out from a jump. That'll happen in jumper stuff all the time. And then they will smack the horse with the whip or crop um, as a punisher for dodging out or, you know, refusing to go over the jump. So the way it's used, how it's used varies, um, but that is a really common piece of equipment to have. And then of course you have your saddles which is what the rider sits in and you have your bridle that holds the bit in the mouth bitless bridles are becoming more common um uh, those that's what I predominantly use actually oh that's so exciting I yeah I can't remember the last time I used a bit actually I mean my some of my clients still do but um I just it's basically like a a soft and it's even padded. Like this is how soft I want it to be. It's the soft leather that is padded on the inside and it's loose around the nose. And then there's just reins attached to it on the sides and on like, it's just, it's like a little soft cotton ball up there. (laughs) That's all I use for my guys. But, and I don't want to make it sound like bitless bridles are always ethical though, because there are some really severe, very intense ones that can actually break their nose. Um, if you pull on them hard enough so they can be used very poorly depending on how they're designed there's ones that are designed with metal um and really stiff rope like there's literal metal that goes across the nose the top of the bridge of the nose that they'll when they engage the reins it pulls down on it so there are some really abusive forms
0: of fitless bridles out there well unfortunately it sounds like a lot of the tools can be used abusive (laughs) oh for sure i mean it's just like the dog world oh yeah uh,
1: Yeah. You can have a flat collar on, but if you're hauling on it and correcting and popping it constantly, then it's not necessarily
0: an ethical tool anymore. Right. Okay. So can you kind of give the the listeners like a, an image of, as you kind of started implementing positive reinforcement training with your own horses, like how did you interchange? Like, right. Like obviously you'd learn to train using punishment. Like, how did you shift that? Like, because I'm sure it took some time in trial and error to be like, okay, what is going to work as a replacement for this?
1: 100%. Oh my gosh. My, my trial and error period was quite interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> so really what started off happening is that I was just doing everything the way I'd been doing it before. But then I was just like clicking for the moments that I liked and then giving some food after. So um, you could say it was just traditional training with a cookie on top kind of situation. Um, so I was still, you know, I, I pulled back on the reins that were attached to a bit until the horse stopped. So like pressure and release. So until this horse stopped and then I released the rein pressure, but I would also click and then give them some food. So, you know, were they responding to the food, you know, were they working for positive reinforcement or were they trying to get away from an aversive? I would argue that they were getting away from an aversive, but it didn't help. There was some cookie after, um, <laughs> So it probably made it a little bit better, but it wasn't what I would consider, you know, like just authentic, positive reinforcement, trained behaviors. Um, So I did a lot of that for a very long time and it was just a really gradual transition to realizing, or I guess I should say, I just gradually reduced the amount of pressure I needed or wanted to use. um, And The amount of punishment, actually, that was the biggest one, was actually quite the temper um, with my horses, which was really unfortunate looking back, but it's just, I, I would get really angry with them because they weren't, I was really taught to, you know, if they weren't responding to me, that they were being disrespectful and that they were being Um, they were trying to dominate me and that they needed to be put in their place and corrected or else they were going to hurt me. And so it had really given a me versus the horse type of mentality. um, And it really perpetuated this um, whenever they were messing up or making a mistake or not understanding um, that they were doing it purposefully against me. They were trying to be difficult. They were trying to be um, (laughs) dangerous or, being stubborn or lazy or whatever so it was like I was fighting my horses constantly it wasn't like I was um which is exhausting
0: but that was I mean that's what you learn, right that's like commonplace and in language describing why a horse would be doing something
1: For sure. And honestly, looking back, I'm like, why did I even like horses with the way, I mean, it didn't, I don't think my horses thought I liked them, honestly, with how I was treating them. It was was so interesting. The mental mindset, we're like, we love horses. And then two minutes later, we're beating them with a stick. So I don't know. I I have a lot of thoughts there, but (laughs) um, it was quite the interesting journey. And I don't know that well, let's, let's say this, a lot of equestrians, at least until more recently, but I still think Mostly, We didn't really actually understand why things were working. So we didn't understand that we were using negative reinforcement or pressure and release. We were just doing the things we had been taught and we were kind of mimicking our trainers, but with no actual head knowledge as to why it was working, what was effective, what wasn't effective, why was the horse responding, why weren't they responding, um, so part of my journey really include, or a big part of my journey really included being able to even recognize when I was using aversive pressure or when I was using punishment, I did not in any capacity understand how much pressure and how much punishment I was using when I first started exploring clicker training. I thought I was mostly using positive reinforcement and it was a multi-year journey and still is trying to reduce and well will recognize first and then reduce the presence of how much aversive pressure I was using and punishment. Um, so it was a, it was quite a learning journey. With lots of ups and downs and lots of learning curves and a lot of emotions too.
0: (laughs) Okay. But those are the best learning like opportunities when we just have to approach it from complete humility, right? Like, okay, well, (laughs) I'm recognizing a lot of things that I'd like to change. And like, I think that that speaks volumes about like your bravery and your commitment to your craft, right? That you can overcome, I'm sure some of those really unfun emotions, right? Like, and some of those self-reflections, the things we don't want to believe about ourselves, but we're starting, we're suddenly starting to see an action in the animals that we're working with.
1: Yeah. And I attribute a lot of that, that ability to keep growing and keep changing um, and improving to my mare tiger that I mentioned before, because along the same journey, I started This was another area that horse equestrian people are not very educated in is um, reading equine behavior. We're actually very misled in quite a few areas. For example, um, we are largely taught that when a horse licks and chews, it means they're processing and they're thinking and that they're learning. um, And it was a good thing. When in reality, it's the saliva reactivating in their mouth and their digestive system basically coming back online after a period of stress. So they were in a fight, flight, freeze response, and now their digestive system is coming back online after kind of deescalating a little bit. So yes, it's good that they've deescalated, but it's also a representative of like they were just in that fight, flight, freeze. So what just happened before? And usually, it was because of something we did because we're chasing them around the round pen or something. Um, And, you know, but we're never taught that. We're never taught that, okay, they were just scared and worried and, you know, stressing out and now they're feeling a little bit safer, but you were the one that caused that. And we need to try and avoid that. Um, Obviously it's not completely possible to avoid that altogether. And I'm not saying we necessarily should, but it's just like that type of stuff. Like we're very misled in a lot of equine behavior. And so during this whole journey. Um, I started becoming very aware and researching equine behavior and like, and we're honestly still learning. We don't even have enough research anywhere near near enough research in this area. Um, but we're starting to learn about, you know, stress signs in the horse and what a horse looks like when they're in pain. I mean, up until very recently, we honestly didn't, we couldn't recognize pain on a horse's face very consistently. Um, and so this whole time I'm learning all of this too. So this goes back to Tiger. She is, was, she passed away last year in September, but um, she had the most expressive face and she was so transparent about how she was feeling. And so if I put even just a little bit of pressure on her, she would immediately start to like eyes widen and freeze up and start to, you know, escalate in that Um, And so she was a really great teacher because she was so ultra sensitive to anything that I did that it required me to be very on my game and very sensitive and in tune to her, which I was not really good at at first. And I apologize profusely to her many times, (laughs) Um, but over the years, she really, you know, pushed me to learn and, and, and to really pick up on the more and more subtle signs and just something as simple as her Um, they do something is called a tongue out lick and that it's kind of like dogs when they, when they lick their face, when they're a little bit stressed, you know, um, they horses do a similar thing. Um, but it's very subtle usually, and most people don't catch it. And I certainly didn't for a long time. She would do that. That was one of her first kind of signs that she would start to give me when she was feeling a little bit tense and a little bit worried. Um, and And so just being able to pick up on that and watch that and observe it and then modify what I was doing accordingly, like just learning that was such a huge step forward. And that's actually another area that I would really love to see the equestrian world embrace is really understanding equine behavior as we understand it now and letting go of some of those old uh, thought processes around it. Um, That would make such a huge difference, honestly, just teaching people that changes everything because they will suddenly start to recognize when they're causing their horses stress, they will suddenly start to <laughs> recognize when the horse is in pain and, and it will lead them naturally down the road to potential, or I should, would hope a more ethical and you know, way of treating their horses and training because um, they'll be able to recognize the symptoms of the horses stressed or in pain or scared long before they blow up. Cause that's been the biggest problem is suppression, t- suppression and yes. and, and, we don't think a horse is scared. And I say, we, I'm just saying questions as a collective, we don't think horses are scared until they blow up and start rearing and bucking. And you know, And then they're like, why like, this
0: came out of nowhere.
1: Yes. Yes. Right. Just like with the dog world and bites and all of that. I'm like, you missed the hundreds of thousands of signs before. <laughs>
0: Oh my God. Okay. Well, I feel like we got to give a shout out to your girl tiger. Like what a beautiful gift she gave you. Right. And being like really clear so that like (laughs) she could be more obvious so that you can now notice maybe more subtle things in horses that aren't as obvious as she maybe was.
1: Yeah. And horses are so, um, a lot of them are very easy to put into what we might consider a learned helpless state, very shut down, um, and so they just stop communicating. So you won't even see those signs because they've learned that nobody pays attention. <laughs> um, and so they're just very shut down, but tiger never really shut down. She, she was treated horribly um, and had a lot of behavioral issues at the time. And I didn't know what to do with them. She would rear and buck and throw riders and it'd take me two hours to catch her. And like, it was just, it was a disaster to deal with her to begin with when I didn't know what was going on. Um, And she was actually sold because they really didn't know what to do with her because they couldn't get her into that shut down, learned helpless state. Um, So I'm very thankful to her for being, uh, I guess, I don't know. I don't even know. Real resilient. Oh my gosh. I can't talk. Resilience isn't the right word there because that's not, but she just, she persisted like her flight system stayed on board for a very long time. <laughs> and um, I'm very thankful for that because a lot of horses, it's very easy to just push them and poke them and prod them because they'll just take it. Cause they're a very peaceful species that just wants you to, they just want to stay alive and like eat their food and be left alone. And so they'll do whatever you ask them to do usually to be left alone and to be um, stay safe. And So most of them will tolerate a tremendous amount of poor treatment and poor training. Um, And then there's those few that don't, and then they're usually sent off to auction or if they're, if they're lucky, they get sent to pasture to be retired. Um, If they're not so lucky, they usually get sent to auction, usually pass homes a few times and then get sent to slaughter um, or euthanized. So it's a rough world out there for horses. (laughs)
0: Oh my God. Yeah. That's really rough. Okay. So Adele, I want to kind of wrap it up here with like your long-term vision for the work you're doing and how you're trying to change the equestrian world.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, so much. I have a lot of, (laughs) I have a lot of vision. My problem is to, I don't know that too much, you can never have too much vision, but I have so much I want to do that. I get overwhelmed because I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much. Um, really honest, my long-term vision is to continue to expand, um, the information and the knowledge to horse people all over the world, um, online and offline that they can just have a more positive relationship with their horses. Yes. I would love to see them training with some amount of positive reinforcement, but honestly, my biggest goal is just to improve their communication and get you know, horse people listening to their horses and trying to be kinder and more effective and more systematic and consistent with their training and just meeting their basic needs. So I have, there's a lot of uh, roads to that. Um, So I'm trying to go at it with a lot of different paths through like social media and conferences and stuff like that. We're trying to get that information out there and easily accessible. Um, But the other part of this is, is that I really want to. um, Provide more access to trainers and. um, Well, I should put it this way more access to hands-on help with this type of training. A lot of people, feel very isolated and alone trying to change and do things differently. Um, like we talked about a little bit ago and so, um, being able to create a community for horse people that are interested in changing and learning and improving, um, and where we can support each other and really learn and they're accepting of that learning process and forgiving of that learning process. Um, that's a big goal for myself. And right now I'm really focused on that online aspect of it, but in the near, in like the next five to 10 years, I really want to bring that to more local stuff as well. Um, yeah, so I have a lot of different paths forward for that and a lot of different ways I can go about it, but I'm just trying to encourage and create a better world for the next generation of horses and equestrians and really support the the young kids that are coming up and the trainers that are just getting started. I do a mentorship program and, and just trying to get, get, get uh, more word out there and more support out there and just make a little difference. Oh my
0: God, Adele, I have so much admiration for how you show up in the world. It is so beautiful. Okay. So for everyone that's listening that maybe has a horse, they're interested in connecting with you. Can you tell them how they could learn from you?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um,
0: so the best place to
1: start is my website. It's just the willing and on there, you're going to find all kinds of stuff. Um, there's a resources page that has great books listed, including books about equine behavior, um, body language, and also training books. There are a few on there. Um, and I also have my own podcast listed on there and my social media outlets, and I also have a blog. So there's lots of free resources on my blog and, there um but if you're interested in learning more about training specifically with a horse maybe you have a horse or you want to maybe volunteer to rescue i have quite a few students that do that um I, t- I have an academy and it starts off with my foundation course and i'll be opening up for enrollment in march of 2022 so you can get on the list for that um but that's yeah that's my online support community for um, horse people and trainers and equestrians. Oh so yeah. Um, definitely check me out on Instagram. That's where I'm most active, but I also have TikTok and YouTube and Facebook and pretty much anything else you can think of.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. And all of those are just the willing equine. Yes. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. And we'll be sure to include links to all of that in the show notes, everyone, so that you can find it. And I highly recommend you follow Adele on Instagram. I love following you. I learned so much. And, you know, one of these days I plan to be a horse guardian. So I, I love that I can kind of like start getting a glimmer of like, okay, this is how I could do it. You know?
1: Yeah. And there's, there's a growing support out there for you, support community. Um, so when that happens, just reach out to us.
0: Oh my God. Adele, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah. Thank you for having me. So I know that CBD is very popular right now, but did you know that there are other cannabinoid profiles that we can use for not only ourselves, but our our dogs as well? Vetsias has a new product out that is not only CBD, but it also uses CBG and CBN to act together to bring pretty strong results to the dogs. The new combination of the CBG, CBD, and CBN is really good for dogs with significant anxiety, excessive inflammation, or dysfunction of the neurologic system. I have been using the new profiles for Tiva. Many of you know my 14-year-old dog, Tiva, and I've seen some really awesome changes in her mobility since starting the CBD, CBG, CBN combination. So if you're interested in trying any CBD products or checking out the new profile, check out vetcs.com and you can use code disorderlydogs for 10% off your purchase. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show.